And we are back, still separate. Tim, uh, you're close to the fire out there. Yeah. Uh, all, all good? Smoky air, I think you were saying? Yeah, yeah, the smoke is back. Look, it's not like it was, I don't know, whatever it was a week or so ago, uh, that whole Mars escape, real uh, particulate matter in the air. Not that, but I can smell the smoke again. Uh, yeah. they, they say that they beat it back from Mount Wilson, the Mount Wilson Observatory, dear to our heart, plus the the, uh, the uh, transmitter for our radio station, KPCC 1.3, yeah. is on that mountain. Um, oh, um, they beat it back from that, They uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's still problematic. Kind of burning the other way, but the wind blows, you know, the wind blows. Right. Well... Uh, for 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 a change, uh, and not necessarily a good change, but for a change, you're closer to the fire than I am. It's usually it's usually the other, always the other way around. It's always the other way around. Well, welcome our listeners back. Um, we're we're lining up some fun stuff on these these odd weeks, these peculiar uh, recording weeks. Um, next week, we're we're we got a couple of authors we're going to be talking to. And uh, the next one is going to be Paul Benedict Rowan, who is the author of Making Ryan's Daughter, a, uh, an amazing book about the making of David Lean's second-to-last film from 1970, uh, soon to enjoy its 50th anniversary on November 9th. That was the anniversary. That would be the 50th anniversary of its premiere. Kind of a legendary film because it's another one of those burden of dreams, Fitzcarraldo-y, uh, Apocalypse Now, yeah. Hearts of Darkness kind of miss, you know, just everything went wrong. I still love the film, but what a great book. So I, I had a great hour-long uh, chat with Paul Benedict Rowan, who is a, a very distinguished Irish journalist. We're going to have that posted a few days after this podcast uh, as an entirely separate show. And then we got another uh, another author that we're going to be talking to shortly thereafter. So we're trying to, trying to mix it up and keep things interesting during this very unusual time. Um, also got a, had a bit of news. Uh, Tim, what do you feel about the Emmys, the, the virtual Emmys that were so low rated nobody watched them? Well, you know, it, it, look, it was a tough it was a tough thing to sort of pull off. Uh, watched yeah. a good chunk of it myself. All right. Uh, I, I did, which is not which was unusual for me. Usually I don't watch the Emmys but because it was as it is uh, this time. I went ahead and watched a good chunk of the Emmys. Um, I, I appreciate uh, the winners. I appreciate uh, the, 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 the programming, uh, the, the, the shows that actually won Emmys. Uh, the show itself, the Emmy show itself, nah, I could have lived without that. Yeah. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's what it is. But, you know, I mean, uh, what else, what, what the heck, heck else are you going to do? I don't know if these things are just going to work. Um, um, and, and, um, and I don't know what the, I don't know what the Academy Awards should take from this. But I just don't know no, if I don't either. things are going to work. In the, the Golden Globes, well, forget about it. The whole point of the Golden Globes is to get all those actors in that room, get them all soused up on liquor. <laughs> exactly. Those tables and have them go off. That's the whole point of the Golden Globes. So so here's the question about the Emmys. I mean, first question. Um, uh, Watchmen, totally deserving. I think a lot of people saw that coming. Does that fix things for DC? Does that mean that DC has gotten the Marvel monkey off its back? Uh, well, it, it means this. DC, there, there is a universe in which the uh, uh, purveyors of DC can construct a narrative uh, that's captivating, um, uh, that lives in the DC universe and gives us those gifts. That, that exists. It doesn't prove anything about what, what they can do you know, in, in, in terms of the featured universe, um, but, but it exists. It's something that they can pull off. They can do it. Um, now, yeah. of course, that Watchmen, the reason why that Watchmen was so good is because did it really only use the broadest possible context of the Watchmen series, both the movie and that uh, the, the, that uh, that book, that graphic novel, in the broadest yeah. possible way. 
the content, that was just all context, all context, you know, Adrian Byte and all that. Uh, the content yeah. was content of the moment. Uh, uh, content uh, that's, you know, pure Damien Lindolph and, you know, and, 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 yeah. and, and whatnot. So it, it, let's just say that uh, instead of that having been the Watchmen, it had been uh, one of the Superman narratives uh, uh, or something, you know. Yeah. And, and yeah. they had put that, that, that content into a different context. You just still had a hit series because the content that was speaking to us, you know. Did you now on the comedy side? Did you see the 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 Shit's Creek uh, sweep coming? Well, because got that, that, I'm sorry, I just never got it. Um, I don't either. That's that's the one that just perplexed me. I I mean, no, obviously good on them. No offense to them, but that that got a sweep, a first time comedy sweep that eluded everything from Mary Tyler Moore to All in the Family and the Jeffersons and Cosby and fr Friends and Cheers and Frasier. I mean, you can go right down the line of all of the legendary Taxi. Mm -hmm. You can go right down the line to all the legendary half-hour sitcoms that have, have made history. Golden Girls. And none of them did that. Is does, does Schitt's Creek really belong in that class and in, in, along along with those? Well, I, well, you know, every one of those shows that you that you just mentioned or shows that if they had won Emmys, I'd have been like, right on. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, it, and, and frankly, most of those shows. Just, Seinfeld. I just want to Seinfeld. Where most of the shows that you just mentioned, if you had asked me, I would have thought had won Emmys. Um, yeah. uh, you know, for for best comedy. Um, um, so so I, I just can't see it now. Like I said. Yeah. I, you know, I gave Shit Creek a little run, you know, yeah. and it was like, eh. and I, you yeah. know, so, so it's not like I, I, I hung in there or anything with it. So did it get that much better? I don't know, but I don't think so. I don't think so either. I think it's, I think this has more to do with a, a dearth of really good comedy on television these days, frankly, but there it is. And then we uh, we unfortunately did well. First, I should also say our little our little uh, Oscar shortlisted short Refugee, uh, which has yet to to make its big appearance online or in a form that everybody can see it. But we'll do that soon. Uh, was a big winner at the uh, second annual French Riviera Film Yay. Festival, which is actually not on the French Riviera; it's in Beverly Hills, but it's called <laughs> the French Riviera Film Festival. Um, but uh, we scored Best Drama, Best Director, and Best Actress. Very happy for Bran Anderson, our writer-director, and for Yasmin Al-Mazri, our star, and uh, obviously for the rest of us. So we're, we're very excited about that. And uh, a, a well-deserving uh, award. So and, uh, three it awards. Was nice. so three awards. So that's just, uh, three awards. Man. Three uh, awards. Uh, more than anything has ever won in two years. Where, yeah. where will people be able to see that film eventually? Uh, and, and, and there are a number of, of places now. Uh, yeah. Between these shows, what's what's going to happen? That that should be sorted out in the next month or so. Uh, we we are there are a couple other festivals that we are a, 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 that we've applied to that we're that we're in. Uh, we'll see what happens with those, but I think by year's end, um, we'll definitely have that shaken out, and it'll have some kind of formal distribution, you know, on its own. So we'll we'll keep everybody abreast of that. And then we lost three people this week. Uh, we lost Michael Lonsdale, the great French character actor, most famous for playing Drax in Moonraker, one of the most subdued Bond villains. <laughs> um, and uh, Michael Chapman, the legendary director of cinematographer, oh. most famous for his work on uh, on Raging Bull, which just is is epic. And then um, in, in a kind of a sideways step, the great uh, football running back, Gail Sayers, oh. who... Oddly enough, is is probably was you know obviously famous as a, an athlete in his day, but has become more famous because of the movie 
Brian's song, yeah. maybe the the first great television movie in history, which just had you and you and I were talking before the show. I mean, it you know, I, I think millions of people didn't never realized how much they could cry at a TV movie until they saw Brian's song. Yeah, yeah, Gail Sayers and uh, uh, quit playing football. Uh, uh, yeah. I don't know about 19, 1971, 72, something like that. And I was a football fan growing up in St. Louis, St. Louis Cardinals. So I'm sure that somewhere in this in the in the late sixties, early seventies, I laid eyes on Gail Sayers uh, playing Jim Hart and the Boys. Uh, uh, but you know, I don't I don't know that that, that I remember that in my head. But of course, um, uh, that movie, you and I both, uh, I literally remember watching that movie on the evening that it aired, a uh, television made for television movie. Uh, um, um, uh, 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 Billy, Billy D. Williams, uh, Jimmy Kahn, Jimmy Kahn playing uh, Brian Piccolo. Uh, and I think that this is a movie where we can all agree that the guys, guys all over America cried. Uh, we, we just cried like a baby. Uh, yeah. for that movie. It was just a beautifully, beautifully rendered movie about these it two, was, two, two men. And it, and it was a, you know, if you think about it, it was a, it was really a landmark risk at the time. It was not just, I mean, you're taking a true story. First of all, I mean, let's remember it is a true story and that that friendship is remarkable and it's tragic. And, you know, Gail Sayers as an athlete was the closest thing that I think the gridiron has ever had to, to a Gene Kelly. You know, yeah. he, he was he was a dancer and an acrobat the way that he would run. But um, this is, after all, 1971, a television movie about a male friendship. Yeah, bromance. And a, the term bromance, bromance. didn't exist yet. And and a and a a cross racial bromance, you know, it's pushing all kinds of buttons, race buttons, sexuality buttons, and all of that stuff that are that in 1971 is still a bit touchy. Why would why would ABC take the risk and not do something? Well, because they took a risk, yeah. you know, and God bless them for doing it, and it paid off because it it is it is the movie that changed television movies. It made it said, you know, if you have a great story. It, it, you're not slumming it if you make it into a TV movie. You're going to reach a wider audience faster, and you're going to have more people sharing the experience uh, across the entire continent. It was it was quite a sea change. And Brian's song is still it still works, man. Uh, it still works. Yeah, classic filmmaking. Uh, it is. Movie. So anyway, yeah, Gail Sayers. Uh, uh, of course, Gail played with the Chicago Bears, which is direct and specific yeah. to the St. Louis Cardinals. So uh, I, I I certainly saw him play. I must have. Uh, but uh, I, I probably never actually cheered for it. Anyway, go. Well, I it, it's uh, it, it's worth watching that movie again just to pay pay tribute to the great Gail Sayers, a great athlete and a great human being. Yeah. Um, the you know I'm going to start off here and, and blow through some uh, some some kino titles. We've got just a ton of great kinos, and I've I've had a chance to really kind of sit and uh, and check a few of them out. Um, and here we go. We're going to start off with the Cary Grant collection. They're doing these wonderful uh, box sets lately. We've covered a lot of them, three films in a box set. And this one has Big Brown Eyes, Wedding Present, and Ladies Should Listen. None of these yeah. are super, super memorable um, among the, the A-list Cary Grant titles. But you know what? They're really, really fun. And uh, he, he starts with Joan Bennett and two of them, Wedding Present and um, Big Brown Eyes. Joan Bennett, wonderful actress, uh, totally underrated at the time. And then he's with Francis Drake and Ladies Should Listen, uh, another totally underrated uh, uh, leading lady. Really fun films. Again, you know, if you're not, if you're not, if you don't want to watch one of the uh, one of the A list titles that everybody already knows, that's a really fun one. Uh, George Axelrod's Lord Love a Duck uh, with Roddy with Roddy McDowell and Tuesday Weld. What a what a trip this is. This is a total uh, 1960s uh, throwback piece. 
really kind of uh, cool and beatnicky. And, uh, you know, George Axelrod, of course, wrote things like uh, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter and Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Manchurian Candidate. I mean, he, you know, he was he was a guy who was very much in the in the mix in that time. And uh, this has a lot of really, really fun throwback uh, vibes to it. I mean, it's uh, it's it's funny. It's eccentric. Ruth Gordon shows up in this thing along with Harvey Corman. Uh, a lot of support, great supporting talent, and uh, you know, it's just it's just a really great satire on all of the kind of beatnicky uh, overkill of the of the era. It's it's a it's a good fun movie. Um, Ruth Gordon is especially good. So Lord Love a Duck on Blu-ray. These are all on Blu-ray, by the way. And a little bit uh, uh, along the lighter lines from uh, roughly the same era, from a year earlier, 1965, is The Art of Love, which is a great early Norman Jewison film with a terrific, terrific cast. James Garner, Dick Van Dyke, Elkie Sommer, and Angie Dickinson. How do you beat that? You do not. Oh, it's just so much fun. Uh, it is, of course, you know, one of those uh, mid-60s, late-60s uh, kind of... Uh, uh, sexual satire comedy um uh farces uh it it's uh and norman jewison of course is very very good with comedy and he's very good with uh with a light touch the best thing about this though we should point out is who wrote it written by carl reiner yes terrific carl reiner and this also has an audio commentary by uh film historian peter tonget which is very very insightful um really really fun movie then we have Spawn of the North with George Raft, uh, Henry Fonda, and Dorothy L'Amour. This is kind of a good old-fashioned adventure movie in inclement conditions, shot in 1938. Feels a little bit more like a like a film from the 1940s, um, but directed by Henry Hathaway, who of course did tons of great westerns and a lot of great adventure films. And uh, it's you know it's about a about a, a a fisherman who kind of turns into dirty Harry in a way. Uh, it's it, seriously, it, it kind of is, you know, it's, it's basically a Western, um, but it's set in, uh, you know, in, in like the fishermen in the, in the North where the, where the fishermen really uh, uh, go after the salmon in Alaska. It's pretty great. Spawn of the North. Um, also got the ghost breakers, kind of a minor Bob Hope effort, but it's still fun. Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard. Uh, directed by George Marshall. Good. It's 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 really really fun. Uh, it you know it again not one of the top tier Bob Hope movies, but from 1940, it was it's it certainly got a lot of great laughs in it. Uh, really well worth checking out. Um, Cat and the Canary is kind of also a uh, a favorite. That's another Bob Hope movie with Paulette Goddard, directed by Elliot Nugent. Um, also kind of in the same general vicinity, made the year before, audio commentary here by Lee Gambin. Um, uh, again, these movies you're watching basically for Bob Hope just showing off and, and doing his shtick. Uh, the plot here is actually quite funny. The, um, it, it, uh, it, 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 it's one of these, um, inheritance plots, which usually wind up being thrillers or Agatha Christie stories. And in this case, it's played purely for laughs. Um, like Brewster's Millions is another one that it kind of follows oh, yeah. along the same lines. But but this is um, there's a whole haunted mansion thing. It's really it's really very very funny. Uh, so check it out, Cat and the Canary. A lot of great laughs. Kind of in a way, you know, what it reminds me of. It reminds me of all of those um, 
I've been showing my daughter all of these, all of the the uh, uh, Looney Tunes shorts with uh, Sylvester and Porky Pig in the haunted houses. <laughs> yeah, which which always kill me. Where you know Porky, nothing ever affects Porky, but Sylvester's losing his mind because there are these mice. There's you know, it just it's too funny. It's great stuff. Uh, James Cagney and Shirley Jones did a did a really great fun bit in Never Steal Anything Small. That's from 1959. James Cagney getting a little bit uh, a little bit older and more seasoned here. Um, Ruben Mullion directed this, uh, who is famous for doing Becky Sharp, the first uh, three strip Technicolor film feature film. And uh, this is this is technically Cagney's final musical performance, and he still can do it. He can still. Really, really, uh, really turn it on. The story is a little bit weird. It's uh, it's kind of about uh, unionization. It's kind of like um, on uh, on the waterfront, except with songs. In a way, mm. it's a little bit pecu- it's a little bit of a peculiar uh, peculiar story. But um, nonetheless, it's uh, it, it's 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 uh, it's got some it's got some it's got some moments. Um, Let's get into Disputed Passage, which is uh, Dorothy L'Amour kind of holding it down without any significant male co-stars that anybody would notice. This is directed by Frank Borzaghi, uh from 1939, a year where everything was overshadowed by all of the, the big films. Yeah, this yeah. is kind of a, oh, uh, a second-tier yeah. film, has a great commentary by uh, Nick Pinkerton on it. And um, it's, you know... Uh, it's a bit of a melodrama. There, it, 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 it's a, obviously not really in keeping with the times to have Dor- Dorothy the more play Chinese, which she does here. Um, if you can get over the yellow face, which at the time, mind you, was not controversial, yeah. but looking at it through a modern through modern eyes is gonna, you'll you'll roll your eyes because Dorothy the more clearly is not Asian and, and should not <laughs> play Asian, but. Um, uh, but it, it, it does have kind of some, some good, well-intentioned, uh, undertones that are, that are very much about tolerance and, uh, and, um, it, then it drifts into a little bit of science fiction, but you know, if you're a Dorothy Limor fan, you might want to check it out. Disputed Passage. Barbara Stanwyck, directed by Douglas Sirk in All I Desire. Uh, this is really just a straight up Stanwyck, uh, vehicle. You get all of the information you need from the commentary here by Imogen Sarah Smith, who really, really lays out all the, uh, all the Stanwyckian elements that make this absolutely fantastic. Douglas Sirk, of course, the, the godfather of melodrama. And, um, it's about a woman effectively trying to, uh, redeem herself from, from past scandal. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck playing this the stage actress and she has to go home again. And it's one of those things, you know, how do you, how do you go home again when scandal has followed you? Um, do can you find redemption? Great supporting performances here. Maureen O'Sullivan is particularly really, really good. Uh, there's always tomorrow also with Barbara Stanwyck, except this time she's back with her, uh, double indemnity co-star Fred McMurray. And of course, Joan Bennett, who's showing up in all kinds of stuff. This also directed by Douglas Sirk. Um, this is a bit of a more famous one. This has uh, Sam Dean doing the audio commentary and an excellent one. And uh, this is just absolutely superb. I think this is one of Douglas Sirk's best films. Uh, it's, I'm gl- thrilled that it's on Blu-ray. Sorry that it doesn't have more extras on it. This one kind of feels like it deserves a, a really great uh, special uh, edition. But if you, if you love McMurray and Stanwyck and Double Indemnity, they are just as good here, even if the movie isn't quite as famous. Remember Richard Farnsworth and the Gray Fox? Oh, Richard. Gosh, so good. 
Um, of course, Richard my most wife. known for that David Lynch film, that uh, the straight story, straight story. Uh, yeah, straight story, which which my wife worked I on. Thought, I thought and that, yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, he he his, the first the the film that really kind of put him on the map as an actor because he used to be a stuntman and a bit player and all that stuff. Um, the film that really put him on the map was uh, Philip Borsos's The Gray Fox, and uh, really an extraordinary story um, based on fact about a guy who um, had spent basically the better part of the last third of the 19th century in San Quentin. Mm. And at the beginning of the 20th century, he now has to sort of step out of prison as an old man and into the, into a new world that, that he's not necessarily prepared for. It's a really beautiful poetic movie. Um, uh, you know, I mean, this is a guy who was like a Western robber and now he's, he's has to find his place in a new industrial world. It's, um, it's it's quite extraordinary, and it still really really holds up. And um, that's I, I can't recommend that highly enough. A lot of extras here. Uh, Alex Cox, the filmmaker who doesn't make films anymore, does an audio commentary, which is really good. Like most of his recent commentaries, there's also a couple of interviews and um, a featurette about the restoration of the film, which is quite beautiful. Mm. Hell Bent uh, is an old John Ford film starring Harry Carey. This is from 1918 when John Ford was just plying his 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 uh, his trade, really learning how to make movies during the silent era. And uh, Harry Carey was not yet the the sort of iconic figure that he would eventually be. Um, I'm it's not a great silent western. It's only 53 minutes long. But I recommend it because it has a, a really, really wonderful 1970 uh, audio interview with John Ford by our former LAFCA colleague and, and a good friend of ours who uh, was all over our documentary schlock, Joe McBride, mm -hmm. um, who wrote the John Ford book, Searching for John Ford. Joe also does the audio commentary on this thing. So in terms of giving you a good dose of film history, um, Hell Bent with Harry Carey gives you a lot of Joe McBride and a lot of Joe McBride is, is an education in film. Yep, boy. Um, uh, let me get through a few more here. I'm going to hit these uh, these three Agatha Christie titles because uh, Kenneth Branagh is shooting his oh, yeah. follow-up to uh, uh, Death on the Nile, his, his next Agatha Christie film, uh, following up Murder on the Orient Express. And uh, so that's that should be coming out at some point. Meanwhile, we have three Agatha Christie uh, films here that are all uh, quite fun. Death on the Nile and The Evil Under the Sun, both of which have Peter Ustinov playing the part of uh, Poirot. And um, I actually quite like both of these. I like yeah. Ustinov as Poirot. I think there are some great commentaries on here uh, with Howard Berger, Steve Mitchell, and Nathaniel Thompson. They do both of them. They're making up featurettes. And there's an interview with Ustinov and an interview with Jane Birkin on uh, Death on the Nile. Um, they've been really nicely transferred. They look great. All-star casts. You, you just, you can't beat it. He's, Peter Ustinov is the, is the star, though. And then uh, Guy Hamilton, a director best known for his Bond films, did The Mirror Cracked, Agatha Christie's The Mirror Cracked in 1980, which uh, is the movie that cast uh, Angela Lansbury as Miss Marple. And from that grew Murder, She Wrote, which, of course, is not Miss Marple, but it's Angela Lansbury basically doing Miss Marple on TV. And uh, The Mirror Cracked is uh, is also very, very popular. This has a great all-star cast. Edward Fox, Elizabeth Taylor, Tony Curtis, Kim Novak, Rock Hudson, Geraldine Chaplin. Oh. Just doesn't get any better than that. 
and Guy Hamilton directs The Daylights Out of It. So another really, really fun Agatha Christie bit. Um, Tim, do you remember Hollywoodland? Hollywood. I, I, Does that? I, remember, I, I mean, I know what I know what it represents. What's, which movie is that? From, from four, this is from 14 years ago. This is 2006. And this thing came and went. I had totally forgotten it existed. It was originally a Miramax film. And I think it's some, at Frank some point. Brody Ben Affleck movie. That's the okay. one. I had completely forgotten this existed. Uh, didn't recollect a thing about it. I remember I had seen it at the time. Took a look at it again. Um, you know, it's it's not bad. I mean, it's 1950s Los Angeles. It's kind of a modern noir. It's kind of trying to do what the what the noirs of the 50s did. It isn't really in the same vein not, as something not, like, not say... George Reeves. Of course, George Reeves, who played the original Superman. And exactly. That was what was funny about it, because Ben Because he was... He when, when they found him dead. Like was going to go on to play Superman. Exactly. And and uh, they, this is this is basically a, a 50s-style noir, a L.A. Confidential-style noir, all centered around the the very, very scandalous death of George Reeves, who, of course, playing Superman on TV at the time was squeaky clean. And then, you know, when uh, he, he, he's found dead, was it a suicide? Oh, maybe not. Maybe the suicide is a cover story. So now you got to put together what really happened to him. And it's actually it's actually quite good. I don't know how how much of this is um, uh, is is factual. Uh, I don't know how much of it is really embellished, but it's it's actually it's actually not bad. Uh, and Ben Affleck wound up getting a Golden Globe nomination for playing. Uh, Reed. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. It's interesting that Ben Affleck played the guy who played Superman and then went on to play Daredevil and then Batman. Yeah. Kind of find that fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Good casting. Diane Lane, Bob Hoskins in that movie. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's 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 a good one. I'd forgotten about it, and I, I don't know why it didn't sort of stick. I guess it just kind of fell between the, the cracks at some point. Um, uh, let me grab a, a few others here. The Balcony, directed by Joseph Strick. Uh, another really kind of um, short-change 60s classic here. I, I really like this. The Balcony of the title, of course, is a brothel. And uh, this is getting a little more edgy in the 1960s. Yeah. They were less afraid of sort of tackling these things. Yeah, Shelley Winters. This is based on a Jean Genet play, and uh, that means, you know, Jean Genet, of course, one of the more scandalous French uh, uh, playwrights of the avant-garde period, kind of kind of really nailed it. There's a very young Leonard Nimoy here, pre-Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, Shelley Winters just chews up the scenery in the most uh, delicious way possible. Great supporting parts from Peter Falk and Lee Grant, and uh, Ruby Dee is absolutely wonderful here as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, really, uh, really very interesting and some fantastic music by Stravinsky really sets the tone. Um, uh, definitely worth checking out. Really, really worth checking out. Beautiful, beautifully, uh, beautifully made. Sign of the Cross from 1932 is an early sound uh, Cecil B. DeMille biblical epic. It's rough, it's dated, but it is historically significant. And uh, here again, the reason for watching this one from uh, 1932 is for the commentaries on it. It has a commentary by um, uh, David Del Valle, who uh, is a film historian, and by Mark Vieira, who is who uh, basically wrote the book on Cecil B. DeMille. So, um, if you if this is really just get about getting background on the film and DeMille and so forth, even if the movie itself isn't terribly great, that, that, um, that movie had been made five times even before DeMille made it in thirty two. 
Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, that's one of the all-time most filmed stories. And, you know, yeah. Jesus movies already get filmed a lot. Uh, I got a couple of Doctor Who movies here, Tim. I know you're oh. going gonna to be thrilled with these. From, 19, from 1965 and 1966, Doctor Who and the Daleks and the Daleks Invasion Earth, 2150 AD. Uh, both of these have Peter Cushing playing Doctor Who, mm-hmm. which, directed by Gordon Fleming, I find that just so fascinating because I had never seen either of these. I think I knew in the back of my head that Peter Cushing had been Doctor Who at one point, oh, cinematically. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it, really an interesting thing. I mean, they, they compare very favorably with uh, all the so stuff he, that was on television and everything that's been after, made since. Uh, it would have been after William Hartnell had played the yeah. doctor, you know, in the early 60s, I think 62, 63. So there's some dispute about, about you know, if he, if he exists in the canon, direct canon of doctors, if, you know, and it kind of throws off yeah. the <laughs> depending on how you, yeah. on how you want to count those things. Yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of extras here for those who really want to just dig into it. Uh, you, you just uh, audio commentary heaven with film historian Kim Newman and uh, uh, Robert Sherman, who is a, a screenwriter and uh, also uh, writer filmmaker Mark Gaddis. They just really two great commentaries, and then uh, both of them have the same uh, documentary, which is Dalek Mania, which is an hour long documentary all about the Daleks and the Doctor Who world. And uh, interviews on each, as well as restoration featurettes. So fun stuff there. Love it. Getting cl- getting close to the bottom here. Uh, we also have Breezy with William Holden and Kay Lenz. This is from 1973. Couldn't Pretty much kind today. of... Say again? Couldn't make that movie today. No, you, de- you definitely could not. This is a Clint Eastwood film. I mean, this was Clint who was, who was pushing buttons in uh, 1973. Um... Uh, but yeah, this is, uh, uh, how do we, how do we, how do we outline this without giving anything away? Um, it's a romance yeah, and, um, it's a really good romance, but Tim is right. You could not make this today. Uh, it, it, it's very much of the era, but it also features some of Clint's most insightful direction. And uh, it's got a real... look, Kay Lenz, it, it, this is extremely young Kay Lenz. She's a teenager in this movie. I think, I think Kay, yeah. I think Kay is probably in her early twenties, but the character is a teenager and she's, Correct. And she's going after this middle-aged divorced man, William Holden, no holes barred. Um, uh, yeah. Like and now, um, th- the movie is about this guy kind of, kind of, kind of figuring out whether or not he wants to do this. It's in that Lolita area. Um, uh, it, it is. Yeah. It's, it, it's, a, it's a little bit uncomfortable, but Clint somehow, who of course has his own history with these May, September romances, Clint, um, I mean, he, I think he was with Sandra Locke already at that point, oh, yeah. I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, there, there's a little, there may be a little bit of sort of autobiographical stuff going on. I, I don't want to read too much into it, but anyway. Uh, John Cleese in Clockwise from 1986 is a blast. Cleese, of course, can hold his own without all the rest of the pythons, and he does, in fact, do that here. Uh, this is, look, this is about a guy who is obsessed with, with, with punctuality which is basically just an excuse for John Cleese to do a whole lot of absolutely crazy gags. And um, it's very, very funny. Uh, Cleese just absolutely what a wonderful uh, physical uh, comedian John Cleese is. Um, Terrific. Uh, yeah, he, he, was, he was right up there with Chevy Chase and, and yep. Jerry Lewis. In the, in the, in, because, you know, those, those sort of, both he and, and Chevy, anyway, are very tall. Uh, uh, and yep. lanky in, the, in those arms, and they would fall down, and he was not afraid to do any of that. 
uh, nope. while while still playing a sort of upright, studious sort of uh, British guy. I love John Cleese in that movie. He is a lot of fun. Uh, and then Malcolm McDowell in a couple of films uh, here, a couple of kind of British classics, uh, one of which more famous and but less accessible than the other. The first one is Brian Forbes' The Raging Moon, in which he co-stars with Nanette Newman. This is the more accessible of the two films I'm going to mention. This is from 1971. Uh, Brian Forbes, of course, did a lot of great movies, including King Rat and uh, The Wrong Box. Really, really fun stuff. This is basically a romantic drama, uh, which gives Malcolm McDowell a, a pre-Clockwork Orange chance to um, kind of uh, be a little bit more normal than what he's normally expected for to do. Um, he uh, he's 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 a guy who's been drinking too much. I don't want to give too much of it away, but um, he he um, there's a there's a let's just say there's a tragedy that befalls him, and it's a bit of a mystery. And the result of that is that while he is convalescing from this unusual medical situation, um, something romantic happens and it, it, it winds up being actually quite poetic and, and beautiful. Um, so uh, Brian Forbes, very, very good director. Here's the one that is a little bit more famous and inaccessible is Britannia Hospital by Lindsay Anderson, the famous uh, um, angry young man director of, uh, of if and, and other, uh, outrageous movies. Lindsay Anderson really pulled out all the stops in Britannia hospital, which has a great cast, by the way, Malcolm McDowell, Joan Plowright, Leonard Rossiter, also a regular from a lot of, uh, Kubrick films, Graham Croden. Uh, but Britannia hospital is straight up insane. This is from 1982 and it, it's almost as insane yeah. as clockwork orange, though not as famous, but, um, uh, Lindsay Anderson, you know, was, was known for pushing buttons, for going the extra mile, for kind of going overboard in many respects. If is maybe the most famous of all of those. And, um, this is also a satire, uh, of the actual institution itself, Britannia Hospital. Um, and it, uh, it plays probably better if you're English, but, yeah. um, even if you're not, the madness and the insanity that goes on. I mean, he, he basically takes a hatchet to everything, to activists, to unions, to aristocrats, to, to um, uh, administrators, to people themselves. It's, and all of it is, in a way, kind of a, a, a microcosm of the British Empire in decline. There's a lot you can read into this film. It's Mark okay. Hamill shows up in here. All of Alan Alan Bates. It's it's a, it's a hell of a crazy movie. It really is just completely. I'm gonna, I'm gonna think of it, 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 because it, it, I mean it, there is serious satire in there about yeah. British society. So I don't know that I would compare it to a mad 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 world because that, there's none of that seriousness in, in, in a mad 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 world. But the zaniness is the same. Um, it's zany but bitter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And and and, and 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 you know again, angry young men. It's actually about something. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we got uh, got a Western here, Richard Widmark and Donna Reed in Backlash by the great Western and uh, noir director John Sturges. Look, this is just a straight up uh, Richard Widmark, John Sturges Western from 1956. It is it plugs in really well with uh, all of the all the rest of this genre. Sam Dean does the uh, audio commentary. This is there's nothing remarkable about it. It's just a rock solid Western. It's beautifully made. William Campbell plays a great gunslinger. Uh, like one of the coolest gunslingers I've ever seen. Yeah. And um, it you know what? It just it's a it's a really really good solid western. 
and it's really well written. It's nicely directed. I love, I love, I love, and that's I love, it. I love Donna Reed in that movie because you know we think about Donna she's, Reed. She's good, but you know she's ballsy in that movie. Oh, she is. Yeah, not not the Donna Reed oh. from TV. Um, then we got uh, Soldier Blue, uh, which is a bit of an unusual movie from 1970. Kind of a weird 70s, 60s transitional movie uh, directed by Ralph Nelson. Um, has a really young, gorgeous Candace Bergen in this thing. I mean, she's just coming out of her own. Peter Strauss and Donald Pleasance. Um, but uh, it, it is, is it a Western? I don't know. It, it thinks it's a Western. It aspires to be a Western, but it still feels kind of like a, it feels like a like a counterculture hippie movie that's using the Western environment to sort of sort of soft pedal an anti racism message, yeah. which yeah. enough. Uh, I, I, I but it, it it doesn't really feel like a Western. It kind of feels like they're trying to find a like they're trying to you know give you a spoonful of medicine on a cookie. Well, yeah, uh, and uh, they could all be on motorcycles instead of horses. Exactly. They they might as well be. They might as well be. Good commentary, though, by uh, Howard Berger and Steve Mitchell. Uh, then Old Boyfriends with uh, Talia Shire and Richard Jordan. Uh, and a great appearance by Buck Henry in this as well. John Houseman also shows up along with Keith Carradine. Um, you know, they, they, they did a really nice remaster of this, so it doesn't look quite as dated as it might otherwise. It's from 1979, Talia Shire kind of trying to be uh, someone other than Rocky's wife. Yeah. Uh, and um, John, John, you know John, what? John, John Tewksbury. Uh, yeah, John Tewksbury wrote this yeah. and, uh, and, and directed it, uh, but she was you know, primarily known as a screenwriter before. And, um, y- you know... Uh, yeah, it's 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 fine. Uh, I think Paul Schrader co-wrote this as well, or wrote the original material. Anyway, it's, I mean, it's it's kind of a melodrama. It's uh, it, it's you know, it's it's one of those kind of uh, woman coming to grips with the 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 shattered pieces of her life movie. A um, little bit of romance. I mean, it, I guess you could stick it in the in the same vein as an unmarried woman. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, some of those, uh, it, it, but it doesn't, it, you know, it's not a comedy. It doesn't have the lighter touches that you might get from like a Neil Simon or from a, a Paul Mazursky. Um, it's, it's just, you know, it's basically one of those late 70s romance movies kind of coming out of the sexual revolution and trying to make sense of, of the end of it. Yeah. Um, kind of between the sexual revolution and, and AIDS, you know, when everything kind of went south. Um, and then lastly, four war movies here. Uh, none of them really particularly remarkable, but all of them perfectly, uh, serviceable, uh, from 1942, right during the war is Wake Island. Uh, Wake Island is basically a propaganda film. It's, it's a, it's pumping people up for the war right at the beginning of the U S involvement in the war Mm -hmm. directed the, the, and the noteworthy thing here is directed by Mia Farrow's dad, John Farrow. That's really the reason to watch this. Uh, has an audio commentary by Steve Mitchell, uh, which is, is, is serviceable just as the movie is. Um, we also have from, yeah, you were saying uh, William Bendix. Yeah. And William Bendix who's always fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have a world war one movie, the Eagle and the Hawk with Frederick March and Cary Grant. Also Carol Lombard and the, uh, comedy great Jack Oakey. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it's not all quiet on the Western front, but it's, it's okay. It's 1933 and it's a, it's a. It, it it sees that there is probably another war on the horizon in 1933. Uh, so it sort of uh, means to be, uh, it, it obviously means to draw a parallel and say this is likely to happen again. But, it, you know, they're, they're good. March and, and Cary Grant. 
the Red Ball Express from 1952, right uh, right after World War II and during um, the Korean War. Bud Boddicker directed this. This is really rock solid. Yeah. Uh, this is all all takes place um, uh, during Patton and when they're trying to you know get supplies into into Paris right at the end of uh, World War II. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in here. It's uh, it's based on true events, but I don't know how much of it really is. Yep. And then lastly, this is the one that really, really shines, is Richard Burton and Raid on Rommel, another Henry Hathaway movie. Yeah. This was made in 1971. Beautiful widescreen photography, full color, fantastic. And, uh, you know, you're watching this just for the, the, the epic filmmaking here, for the Henry Hathaway direction, and for Richard Burton just pulling out all stops and, and being a, a, an amazing... A uh, soldier and intelligence officer, you know, trying to lead the lead the attack on Tobruk. Of the movies about Tobruk, I think this one is better. There are about three or four of them, including one called Tobruk. But I think uh, Raid on Rommel is the best those, of them. Those and those those uh, those those early seventies uh, war movies about World War Two, uh, yeah. they had a completely different look to them than than you know the movies made even in, even well, even in the forties or alone in the fifties. Uh, they also had a different look than World War Two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. But but they dealt with different aspects of the war that I thought was always more a lot sure. of them. You know, yeah. the war yeah. in Northern Africa and all that kind of stuff. Uh, For sure. Just the stuff in, in, in Europe. Interesting stuff. For sure. Uh, Tim, what else? Uh, you, you got some, uh, we got some LGBT stuff. Yeah, I thought I would uh, bump through a bit of that uh, for us real quick. Let's see. Let's go over here and start with Dark Room, uh, which I believe is a German film. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah, uh, a, neat, a, a neat movie. It's about this nurse and his boyfriend, and they move to Berlin, and they're going to move into this apartment together, uh, uh, and and live together. And uh, there's a kind of a oh, what was the uh, situation where the, the one guy doesn't know that the other one is secretly checking out Berlin's, you know, sort of ongoing nightlife, and he's experimenting with drugs and gets a hold of this fairy deadly poison. I like this movie because it's a bit of a thriller. Uh, it's more of a thriller than anything else. Um, or, uh, uh, put me in the mind. I keep trying to think of the um, the uh, the Al Pacino film, um, um, uh, uh, cruising, cruising. Uh, oh yeah, cruising. Yeah, yeah. Stuck in my head. So so it's more more that than it is anything else. Rather enjoyed that a little movie, Dark Room, twenty nineteen film. Uh, and then we have another film that uh, walks down more traditional territory. This is sort of like a Russian broke back mountain. Uh, is about these two guys, you know, and uh, yeah, they, 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 they have all kinds. Of- oh, si- Siberia and him, yeah. Siberia and him. Yeah, uh, uh, and it's it's it, this is a real brokeback mountain of a Russian gay film, which is itself sort of trusted in and of itself, but very sort of contemporary. The uh, the um, uh, the uh, area that they're in is absolutely beautiful because they're out in Siberia, so they have all these sort of beautiful photography. They fall in love out there in Siberia. But you know there are women involved, and it's like I said, very given 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 what's going on in Russia, given how this stuff is censored, how would this film have gotten made? Do we have any idea? How would it have gotten made, and where and where would it have been distributed? Every place else in Europe, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there you go. You have an interesting question there. Interesting leads to this other film, the next film, Bitter Years. This is a film about I guess you, you would call this guy the Harvey Milk. Of the early seventies gay Italian movement, Italian gay movement. <laughs> okay. Um, um, and he was, you know, he was, he was, he was quite a figure. Again, um, we forget sometimes that uh, European culture was, in, in some ways, behind us when it came to these things, particularly in Italy. Um, um, you know, a very, very sort of machoistic 
cultures. And you had this guy who was sort of overtly gay uh, and living his life in, in the early 70s and, um, and, uh, and, and working on leading, leading the, gay, the Italian gay movement in the early 70s. So this is kind of a neat film about that historical figure. Uh, then we have a film called The Lawyer. Uh, it's about this carpet lawyer uh, who just, you know, is a regular young gay man running around doing stuff. His father dies. Uh, and when his father dies, it kind of put, uh, sends him into a tailspin. Uh, and uh, he, he ends up uh, sort of getting connected with this sex cam worker uh, who he used to watch all the time. And it's, it's interesting because the, the, uh, the sex cam guy is a Syrian refugee. And this all sort of takes place in Belgrade. It does, it's dramatic. It's uh, romantic. It's kind of kind of interesting. Slow little movie. I rather enjoyed that one. Uh, uh, a French television series set in 1981 called Proud. Um, uh, and what this basically looks at, or it starts in 1981 and then moves over several generations. And what it's really looking at is how the dynamic uh, of, of, of gay people has changed from the early 80s, uh, 40 years ago, right to the present day. In 1981, it was still absolutely illegal to be gay in France, period. Illegal to be gay. In 1981, it was not illegal to be gay in the United States of America. We didn't have gay marriage yet, but it wasn't illegal to actually be gay. Interesting. Uh, um, but in France, it was still actually literally illegal to, you know, the present day where you know, LGBTQ uh, couples uh, can, in fact, get married and uh, and have families and everything. A really interesting that, generation. And, that's, that. and, this is from, that. and this is from Philippe Faucon, who directed Fatima. Oh, yeah. Uh, a really good film from a few years oh, ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and what I find interesting about that, you know, I lived in France not too long after that, never would have known that history, never would have known. Yeah. Uh, it's just fascinating to me. Well, we have a little film called Benjamin, a lovely little film from 2018. It's about a young filmmaker uh, who finds himself falling in love with this guy. He has a second film that's about to premiere. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and this, all of this is going to make a, make a difference in the way all of that plays out. This is a sweet little romantic comedy. It's very, very cute. Nothing is really dire. That's going on in the movie, and I rather like that about that one. Um, yeah, let's see. That's all I have here at the moment, Wade. What do you got over there? Uh, you know, I want to make uh, for Leonard Skinner fans. There's a couple of things that came out that I should make quick mention of uh, because we've had two movies that are sort of Leonard Skinner based uh, that center around the that that band. And if you don't know, Leonard Skinner is what's kind of famous is is that the is the plane crash. Mm. If you don't know about that, I'm not going to go into any any greater details. Um, but what we've got first off is a documentary, um, about the plane crash called I'll Never Forget You, The Last 72 Hours of Leonard Skinner, mm. which is based on the book I'll Never Forget You. Uh, and this is from, uh, this is, uh, basically put together from firsthand accounts from people who, who survived the, the, the crash. Mm. And, um, it, it's, it's kind of harrowing. I mean, it's not a great documentary from a craft standpoint, but it is harrowing just from an emotional standpoint. And then um, we have a dramatic film here. It's a Blu-ray DVD combo that also comes with a soundtrack CD, which of course it, it, it almost has to. Uh, and this is this has been this is better than I expected for an independent film that that clearly didn't have the budget to fully do to go where it needed to go. But it's called Street Survivors: The True Story of the Leonard Skinner Plane Crash. And uh, it, this, it, it, apart from, apart from some of the the shortcuts in ter in terms of budget, uh, it's actually surprisingly good, and um, it 
again, I'm not going to give, you know, if you don't know what happened in the plane crash, what caused it, who survived, who didn't, et cetera, et cetera, I, I will give none of that away. But, um, boy, it really, uh, independent of some of the production value stuff, it really, really uh, packs a bit of a punch, and uh, the performances are very, very good. So Street Survivors, the true story of the Leonard Skinner plane crash. Uh, let me hit a few um, Mill Creek titles here. Okay. Mill Creek's uh, come out with a lot of stuff lately. Um, most of it blue uh, DVD, not a lot of Blu-rays. But um, one of the more interesting Blu-rays is Trapped. If you remember that, that's an early Charlize Theron movie with uh, with um, Kevin Bacon yeah. and Courtney Love. Stuart Townsend is in this as well. Um, you know what? I, I mean, we, we all kind of think that Charlize Theron was a pretty face early on in her career, and then she kind of became an actress later. No. But I would say no. She always really had it going. This is from 2002, and she was already showing some chops here. Even if the movie isn't, you know, great, even if it is kind of a kind of a low-level thriller, um, you know, it's a ransom thriller, basically. But uh, she, she really pulls out the stops here. You can see that there's a great actress coming. Um, we also have a couple of Ultraman titles, uh, Ultraman, the series and Ultraman, the movie. Uh, this is, uh, you know, modern Ultraman. This is a, uh, uh, let's see, which, which, what, what's the technical title here? Uh, cause there's just so much Ultraman. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is the more recent Ultraman just from, uh, from the last few years. Um, but in any case, this is uh, Ultraman the series and Ultraman the movie, the more recent incarnations, all on one uh, combo pack, Blu-ray and digital uh, combo pack. And then uh, Ultraman Ace, which is pretty great. Uh, this is series five uh, of the original Ultraman titles, and it comes in a wonderful steel book to go with the others. Uh, they've already released the first four. This one will fit on the shelf just beautifully alongside them. I, I, I think this is probably at least as good as the first four. Um, it's, uh, pretty much the same kind of deal, just different designs. The Ultramen are, are getting a little bit, you know, fancier in terms of the suits and the special effects are a little bit better, but it's still really, really fun. And then, uh, a bunch of, a uh, bunch of regular, uh, well, here's a, here's a couple of, uh, other Blu-rays. Uh, let me just hit some of these Blu-rays. Got some double features in here too. Uh, the Blu-rays include The Nines with Ryan Reynolds and Hope Davis, which is a really, really good movie that doesn't get enough credit. It was written and directed by John August, the great screenwriter, mm -hmm. also a really good podcast. And um, uh, this, I, 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 I really, really think people should uh, should make an effort to, to check this out. It kind of came and went. It's a really, really interesting um, kind of uh, edge-of-your-seat um avant-garde surrealist thriller mm -hmm. maybe that makes sense but it is it is it's basically comprised of three short films that work together as one film all of them starring um ryan reynolds mm -hmm. and um it's it, it, it it's a little it's a little funky but it it, it works um a lot of we also have names that we hadn't heard yet that octavia spencer was in that movie yeah uh, you know yeah People, people who would who would eventually uh, come of age and 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 become a big deal, yeah, for sure. Um, got uh, got another one of these uh, Andy Sidaris movies, Enemy Gold, guy with a gun, girls with guns, and skimpy outfits, and uh, and a plot that makes no sense and it doesn't need to because it's just got you know muscle bound guys and skimpy girls with guns and 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 they're all you know agents or gangsters or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's an Andy Sidaris movie. They're all the same. I uh, got some cool double features here. 
the contractor and the fan, both of them with Wesley Snipes, the latter with uh, Robert De Niro also on board. Contractor is kind of a straight up Wesley Snipes uh, actioner, but the fan oh, is not a bad movie. That's fan. not a bad movie. Right? That was a I, Tony I, Scott I, I movie. The fan. I, they, I, I, I even still got the swag they gave me. A San I do too. Was it the San Francisco Giants watch? Uh, yeah. That, I still got that swag, man. Yeah. Um, Wesley Snipes is, of course, a baseball player. Robert De Niro is an obsessed fan. You know, it's one of those movies. Robert De Niro goes crazy like he does in every movie that he's made where he's a crazy, obsessed person. Uh, and uh, Wesley Snipes, uh, for some reason, is playing baseball in the rain at the end. They don't call the game for the rain. <laughs> so Tony Tony Scott didn't realize that. He's like, no, I need the rain because my name is Tony Scott, and that's what I do. I backlight the rain so it looks cool. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple of double features here. Um, Glenn Ford and Julia Adams in The Man from the Alamo, along with Gary Cooper and Rita Hayworth in They Came to Cordura. Pretty much just basically, uh, you know, gunslinging westerns with tough guys. But they make a nice uh, nice double feature, and it's bargain priced, so why not? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, crime double feature, Hollywood Story and uh, New Orleans Uncensored, both of them directed by William Castle. Uh, the first with Richard Conti and Julia Adams. The other, uh, New Orleans Uncensored with Arthur Franz and Beverly Garland. Basically, you're watching these because they're William Castle movies. They're fun. Uh, not not a lot of stars, but you know the William Castle touch, which is a little bit cheesy, but a lot of fun, yeah. uh, is 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 definitely worth watching. So a couple of William Castle noirs there, very good stuff. Can't go wrong. All right. Want me to jump on? To Can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Let, by all means, let's hit the new I'll movies. I got a couple of new ones anyway. Um, um, uh, let's see. We got Baby Teeth. Um, let's see. Do I remember this movie? I think I saw this one. Uh, it's about this. It's about this young teenage girl uh, uh, who's who's ill. Uh, and she falls in love with uh, her drug dealer, um, uh, and, uh, and and what her parents are going to do about that. This movie is actually rather uh, touching and moving. It lives in the same spot as some of those um, Nicholas, uh, whatever his name is, movies. It, it always reminds me where there's a dying girl. Uh, or oh yeah, 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 yeah. Nicholas Sparks, yeah. right? Nicholas Sparks. Yeah, yeah. Nicholas Sparks. That's right. Uh, uh, but this is a Shannon Murphy film, and it's a little bit more sincere, and perhaps a little bit more avant-garde. Uh, Liza Scanlon in the movie. Uh, and, I, and that, the kid Toby Wallace, who plays Moses in that movie, uh, I, I found him rather striking. Uh, tall, skinny uh, kid. I mean, kind of a weird-looking kid, but in that sort of sexy kind of way. So rather enjoyed that. Uh, don't know if that that has any um, uh, anything on it uh, that might be interesting for the folks who know about Wade. Uh, not uh, not particularly now. Not not especially. Uh, driveways. Uh, an Andrew Han film. This is a really lovely uh, uh, film, Asian themed, uh, Chinese themed film um, uh, about this eight year old boy and, and, the, and, the, and the summer that he spends um, with his mother. Brian De Brian Dennehy is so good in this. Uh, I mean, yeah, so, yeah. so sad that we lost him. Yeah, yeah, we, lost say, him just we lost, of course, not 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 too terribly long. Yeah, uh, Christine Ebersole is in the movie too. Uh, anyway, it's um, I don't know what I was. I was trying to think of something to compare it to. I was, I was thinking maybe about maybe that um, that uh, Clint Eastwood film. Um, oh yeah. With, yeah, you know the one with the car. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Grand Torino. Grand Torino, you know. So, yeah. In a little bit, uh, sort of way, sort of lives in that lives in that spot. But it's a perfectly lovely movie um, um, that, that I really really thought was good. Um, Inside the rain. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, this is this is that sweet little. I saw this movie. This is that sweet little sort of uh, romantic comedy. 
um, uh, about this kid who's, who's, who's going to get kicked out of college. Uh, and and uh, he's bipolar. Oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. The the he got ADHD and OCD yeah. and every other D. Yeah yeah yeah. He this girl now. Right in the record, this kid is this young person, Aaron Fish. Rosie Perez shows up in the movie. Uh, Eric Roberts, and he's now. I I don't know. I I, I do not think that Aaron Fisher actually um, suffers from uh, the sort of OCD and, and other bipolar issues that this character suffers from. But he's right in that. He's. I, I swear to God, he's. He's. I, I was. He was so familiar that he executed the performance wonderfully. He, he's the writer, director of, of the film, and he's the star of the film. Um, uh, and uh, anyway, he gets involved with this stripper, and he, he thinks he's in love with her. And his parents are trying to deal with how, how completely nuts he is, and, and, and he's trying to argue for why he should not get kicked out of school. And uh, it, it's it's an engaging uh, the, the film that I really really rather enjoyed. Anything anything interesting that I would have loved to have seen? Um, 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 a absolutely a- absolutely nothing but a trailer. Yeah. That's all that is on it. Um, few few other movies that were uh, that would have been in theaters but uh, didn't get to theaters but they got to VOD and now they're on DVD and Blu-ray. These are all uh, all Blu-ray. One is Most Wanted, which resurrects the career a little bit of Josh Hartnett, um, uh, who played. This is a true story about the a Canadian film, basically about the investigative reporter, the kind of the hipster investigative reporter, uh, played by Josh Hartnett, who um, is. Uh, who exposed the corruption? How do I do this even without revealing this? Who who exposed the corruption uh, behind a heroin bust mm. that was designed? Uh, well, um, there, there there was there's a guy. It's it's basically a French Canadian guy who was framed in a heroin bust, and how and why that transpired. It was a very scandalous thing in in Canada. And I, I'll leave it at that, but um, it's not as good as it should be. Jim Gaffigan playing a heavy, which he's doing a lot of lately, is, is one of the more interesting things about it. Josh Hartnett, surprisingly good. We haven't seen him in, in quite a while. And um, so he's kind of trying to, you know, grow some hair and, and, and you know, camouflage who he really is. Um, it's worth a look. I don't think it's great, but it's worth a look. And then Steve Carell uh, starring in Irresistible, written and directed by Jon Stewart. Probably should have been better. Uh, this is about a small town, um, small town politics that they are where they get. Well, how do we even do this? I think Primary Colors is a better version of this yeah, story. Let me put it that way. Primary Colors is a better version of this story. The character played by Steve Carell here is basically the one played by Billy Bob Thornton in uh, in Primary Colors. And what they want is they want to go to this small town and take this guy, this average guy played by Chris Cooper, and turn him into a national figure to humanize the Democratic Party, make it seem more in touch with the common man. And it all winds up uh, making this small, this relatively small election into a giant national spectacle with um, Steve Carell going uh, toe-to-toe with Rose Byrne, who plays his rival on the other side. It means to, to have a lot to say about our politics, but it winds up being just a little bit too pat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think um, John Stewart kind of went for screenwriting 101 instead of a really original story. But it's okay. The the cast kind of pulls it through. And then uh, King of Staten Island, Peter Davidson yeah. from SNL, not one of my favorite people, doing a uh, doing a movie with Judd Apatow. I can't say I really like this. Did you see this, Tim? Uh, yeah, I did see it. Um, uh, I did, cause they ran it. It was one of the first movies that, that when the pandemic began. 
right yeah from, i think it was universal if i'm not mistaken uh, it's kind of the first John Apatow movie that I don't really get. Like, even if I don't think they're, if I think they're too long, I get them. I don't really know why he wanted to do this movie. Well, Peter well, Davidson is Apatow, not really appealing. John Apatow kind of discovered Peter Davidson, uh, you know, self-comic. And of course, you know, what we come to know about Peter, what, you know, Peter, he has a, has a fairly tough uh, story as a young man whose father yeah. was killed uh, during, during, during uh, 9-11. And, yeah. a, and, a, and a good deal of the backstory of this character, what's going on with this character. Saw the feeds back into that whole, you know. I, I suppose it's meant to be cathartic uh, for them. I'm not sure why it's how it's meant to play out in my life, but it's, yeah, it's that's what I don't get. Funny nor cathartic for me. So what? What, you know, what can I say? I have you know d- deepest empathy for him and the loss of his father. Well, they can, they can, they, they, they can have it. It's not my kind of movie. I got a couple over here I want to knock through real quick, including because a couple of smaller films. This one from Sean McNair. Uh, uh, called The Mighty Oak. This is a neat little movie, actually, um, which I don't know, but I saw it for the show. So it's about this, uh, this woman. She's a, she's a music promoter. Ten years earlier, her, her, little, her, her, her brother uh, was the lead of this band that she was managing, and he was going to be a big, big star, and everybody knew it, and, and, and it's going to be fantastic, and he dies in, a, in an automobile accident. Uh, fast forward to, to, to now, she's still a music promoter, a music manager, and she runs across this young man, who for all the world has all of the talent and skill and sounds and moves just like her little brother. Could he be the reincarnation? Oh, that's weird. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's just one of those sort of movies, kind of slightly walking along. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a PG-13 movie. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to engage your sense of the, um, of the, um, the mystical, the mystical, the magical, and the, and the love never really goes away. It's really about how she's dealing with all of that. Uh, Raven Simone is in the movies. You know, so, so those of you who love me, I'm so Raven and all that. Kind of Yay, uh, Raven. In the movie. Uh, and uh, what else do I have here? Another, uh, uh, I, I, I saw this one also for the radio show back when it came out. Uh, Timothy Anderson film called 200,000 Dirty. Uh, Coolio uh-huh. in this film. And Coolio. Now, we will all remember Coolio from back in the, I guess it would have been the 90s with the little break. Sure. Stuck up like little spider tentacles all over yeah. Well, he's still doing that, only there's no hair in the middle anymore. Uh, so uh, it's it's more or less like all coming out from the sides, and then you got the bowl. But <laughs> the uh, the attitude there is more or less the same. Anyway, they work in this strip mall at this mattress store, and it's just a horrible, horrible existence. A young woman uh, comes in to be the assistant manager there, and she figures out a plot where they could, they're going to steal two hundred thousand dollars from this guy. It's all. It's all, you know, fairly funny. Uh, uh, these encounters. So, sounds like sounds like clerks with Coolio. Kinda, you know, but yeah. mostly it's about Coolio, dude. I did not know that there was a Deep Blue Sea two, right? So, <laughs> Nineteen nine. We remember that, of course. With a couple, a couple of films yeah. movie, Thomas Jane, uh, uh, LL Cool J, as opposed to Coolio uh, in that movie. I didn't know there was a Deep Blue Sea two, so I damn sure didn't know. If there's a deep blue C three, which there is. <laughs> yes, there is. And you know, you you know what I love about this? I love the tagline. The tagline is deadlier than ever. You know what? You know what? They should have put the tag tagline. Not as deadly as before, but what the hell? <laughs> that would have been. That would have made more sense. Oh man, these movies, these movies. Uh, you, you you put a shark in a movie, and you have a bunch of wacky stuff happening. And you get yourself one of these. I don't know what to say about that. There it is, Deep Blue Sea. Um, Dancing Dogs of Dubrovnia, on the other hand, 
has a perfectly lovely um, uh, Polish film uh, about this brother and sister, sort of exchange, a strange brother and sister, your classic strange brother and sister, who gets suckered back uh, uh, to their small town in, uh, in Poland um, at the request of their grandmother, their dying grandmother. Uh, and uh, mostly it's a, it's, it's a ploy to bring them back together as brother and sister, but there is a thing that they're going back for. But mostly we get to travel with this brother and sister, and I, I, I thought it was just a perfectly lovely sort of comedy, um, brother-sister comedy that was really, really, really sweet. Uh, lovely opposed film. So check that one out for sure. What else you got, Super sweet. I got Trip to Greece. And, you know, you look at this and you think, okay, so this is the third of the Trip films. I guess they've made a trilogy now, yeah. Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. Uh, this is it. It's the final course is what they call it. The, uh, <laughs> the trip to Greece, the final course. And they're all based on think, food a lot, you know, mostly. Yeah. I mean, basically the, it, it's shtick, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon just, just going somewhere exotic to, to experience the food and then doing their, their kind of Abbott and Costello, Abbott and Costello shtick that they do. And, um, you know, my question going in was, what could Michael Winterbottom and Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon do that they haven't done in the other two films? Yeah. And the answer is nothing. <laughs> it's more, nothing. It's more of the same. Yeah. But that's all everybody wants out of these movies. They just want more of the well, same. The, the, you know? They add an impression or two. Uh, yeah, but it's, but, it's uh, basically, but it's still the two of them the, doing their shit. of it is, is the same. Um, um, so, you know, yeah, yeah, there you go. I, the thing about those movies is, you know, there's that sort of, you know, they're playing versions of themselves or themselves. There are yeah, all these, yeah. But there are these excerpts in the movie or vignettes in the movie um, where they're playing themselves, but now they're not really playing themselves. And they're in the sort of yeah. narrative bits of, of, of movie that are, you know, scripted. Um, and, 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 and I guess to my mind, in none of those movies, including, you don't need any of that. Get rid of all that scripted no. stuff. Um, um, the, the, and, uh, and just, and just you guys, and, and plus, if you do that, you can knock 20 minutes off these movies. Um, there you go. Uh, yeah, because they weren't movies. They weren't movies in the UK anyway. That, that was television, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, uh, and they chop them up and move them around. Michael went about them and they chop them up and move around and made them, made them theatrical release movies for, for, you know, the American market, the North American market. Fine. But I think that they would have probably just played better as the TV shows that they were in the first place. Tim, let's talk about uh, Rod Lurie and The Outpost ah. for a second. Um, you know, The Outpost uh, is now out. This is uh, written and directed by Rod Lurie, former film critic and member of the L.A. Film Critics Association uh, and uh, someone that Tim and I have known for a very, very long time. Yeah. Uh, former film critic for the uh, for Los Angeles Magazine. Uh, Rod, here's the thing about Rod, who, of course, has done a number of films and gotten some and not some so great reviews. But here's what's amazing. This is an amazing war film set in Afghanistan. Yeah, this Rod, is, of course, uh, is a graduate of West Point. See, that's the thing. I, and, and, and a lot of people don't know that, is that Rod Lurie, before he was a film critic, was a West Point graduate. He knows his military stuff, that he knows. And this is a world he has not personally explored. He was co-creator of, uh, what was it, uh, Madam Secretary right. on, on television. And uh, so this is this is Rod really finally going not entirely into politics, but into into the nitty gritty of, of the military, which he knows very, very well. And you can tell um, I am so sorry yeah. that this didn't get a theatrical release because it needed it. It deserved it. It should be seen on a big screen. The pandemic kind of ruined that. I hope it gets some kind of a limited theatrical release eventually when we get back to theaters, because um the nobody has yet made a movie about American soldiers fighting the Taliban. Yeah. 
oddly enough, here we are almost 20 years past the, the initial invasion of Afghanistan. We've had movies about the Iraq war, but the Afghan part of it has not really been treated in the movies. And I think this is a great film. I think it's a terrific film. I hope it gets uh, a little bit of a, an Oscar push. Um, he, he does a great job taking actors who are kind of pretty boys who've been associated with other kinds of films, notably Orlando Bloom and, uh, and Caleb Landry Jones. And he gives them a whole new look here. Um, Orlando Bloom is, is trying to get a little bit tougher and less of the pretty boy kind of Errol Flynn character that he, he was, uh, nurturing early on in his career yeah. with, you know, Lord of the Rings and, uh, and Pirates of the Caribbean here. He really, he goes for, he goes for gritty. And the best thing that they did for Caleb Jones is shave that red hair off. Yeah. He's no longer that kind of, you know, he, he got, he got stereotyped into kind of ginger roles for a while, right? right? Uh, you know, the fair-skinned, freckled, red-haired guy is a bit of a trope in the movies, and he was getting pigeonholed with those roles for a long time. They shaved his head, he gets to be a soldier, and he's great. And you see his range in a way that you've never seen it before. I think this is a, a really solid film. It's got a great commentary by Rod. He really, really goes into it. And it's got some uh, rehearsal footage, too, and behind-the-scenes stuff. It's very, very good. Yeah, yeah good stuff. Um, uh, Rod, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, really, really sort of excellent and diverse sort of filmmaker. Rod lost his son uh, uh, not very yeah. long ago. Um, um, that, that of course, Kevin Pollock in Rod's first film, friend of the show, Kevin Pollock, uh, in yeah. Rod's first film, Deterrence, nineteen ninety nine, uh, and uh, yeah, some really really good stuff. Let's see. Uh, we've also got a couple of films that have almost an exact identical title. They both have, and it's not you know anything unusual. We get films with the same titles all the time, but not usually on the same week. Uh, and here we have, uh, again, Orlando Bloom going gritty in retaliation, which is a, a, a very difficult movie. I'm not going to say, you know, he's here, he's doing the same thing that he was doing in Outpost, trying to sort of forge a new, uh, a new identity as an actor as he's getting older. And, um, uh, this is about a guy who was molested by a priest as a young man. And now he is he he encounters the priest again as he's older, and he starts plotting, basically the the priest's murder. Um, it's not a thriller though; it's a character study of an incredibly damaged man who has carried this damage with him his whole life, and how he uh, seeks to to uh, to reconcile himself to it in the worst way possible. This is not a fun film to watch, but it is a grueling film, and uh, it's. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how, how I recommend this, but if the subject matter certainly appeals to you, then uh, I, I would say you will be well served by it, but you need to go in prepared. Um, and the other one is also called Retaliation. More specifically, I Am Vengeance Retaliation. Uh, this is less of a serious film. This is just more of a straight-up actioner with, uh, with Vinnie Jones and, uh, and Stu Bennett. Tough guys, few tough women, some fighting, a lot of guns, a lot of explosions. Uh, Stu Bennett, for those who don't know, is a, is a former wrestler. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's all shot in Eastern Europe with like a special forces team. And, uh, it's got some government spy thing going on. I couldn't make a whole lot of sense of it. It's the usual thing that goes on. There's a lot of kind of fake spy talk and fake government talk and then fake mission talk. And then stuff starts blowing up and bullets start getting fired. And somehow it all resolves in the end. I think there's a double cross or two. Um, if you blink, you'll miss, if you blink, you'll miss the details, but it doesn't really matter. It's perfectly serviceable, but not remarkable. 
Uh, uh, let's see. What else do we got? Oh, um, you know, we should make mention of this as long as we're on the subject of new films before we start to wrap up here in a little bit. Uh, this is uh, The True History of the Kelly Gang. Oh. Uh, it's the story of Ned Kelly. Oh. Um, yeah. That, that, uh, that, uh, that um... Mick Jagger film is is running now on on movies. That movie channel I watch is not that, that it's running all yeah. yeah. I keep I keep seeing pieces of Nick, Mick Jagger played Ned Kelly, uh, and uh, I guess he he played Ned right, and that Australian he did he played he, in that in that in that that uh, it was that weird Australian film from way back. Yeah. And we've also had another Ned Kelly film uh, uh, in the interim with Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger was in it. And Ned Kelly, of course, who don't, those who don't know, is sort of the famous uh, Western outlaw of the Australian outback, um, legendary for the big shootout that finally killed him, where he put on this weird kind of tin can suit of armor and came out guns blazing, and they took him out. Um, the, uh, the all of these movies, I figure, I guess, if you would Jesse James, like Jesse James and Billy the Kid, all wrapped in in one. Anyway, uh, this is yet another telling of it, directed by Justin Kurtzel. It is, uh, this one's a little bit too tricked up. It's a little bit hyper-stylized, and it's got some weird cross-dressing stuff in it that is not part of the original story. He just did it because. But um, there are some very, very good performances in it, notwithstanding all the the, the hyper-stylization and the stuff that's a little bit annoying. Um, Russell Crowe is in this thing yeah. as Harry Power who was sort of um, Ned's mentor. Harry Power was a legendary Bushman outlaw in his own right. Kind of a pudgy, bearded guy who, you know, hijacked uh, uh, wagon trains and all kinds of stuff. Uh, not wagon trains, but, you know, people on stagecoaches and whatnot. Um, and uh, so he's really good. Russell Crowe is Harry Power, almost steals the movie. You almost hope it wish it was a Harry Power movie. But anyway, it is a Ned Kelly movie, True History of the Kelly Gang. Not great. But it has spots in it, and it's got a uh, an, an, a, a, um, a trailer and then kind of a semi-commentary. It's not really much of a commentary. Mm. Go, yeah, yeah. So anyway, this, this movie is kind of interesting to me for one reason, one reason only. It's Beckman, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an action thriller, straight-up wacky movie. I love the theme. You got this guy. He's a contract killer. He literally becomes a legit reverend at a church in L.A. Literally. Actually, completely sincerely, until his daughter gets kidnapped. <laughs> uh, isn't that always the story? By the leader of this this cult, uh, and then of course uh, he goes he goes bananas across the city, uh, messing people up. He goes he goes Bronson. He do, he goes full Bronson. Full Bronson, the the Reverend and the Hitman. It's a good thing the Reverend has those those previous Hitman skills though, because they come in handy. And you got Billy Baldwin, and you got Jeff Fahey, and all of these guys. I just sort of love in these kinds of movies. Uh, and uh, you know, it's 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 a good rip roar uh, for, with that kind of a theme. So if you haven't seen one of those in a while, you might want to give that one a look. That's that's the one I wanted to toss in there. All right, good deal. Um, all right, let me uh, let me jump into some of the uh, the 4K titles here. Um, we've got two biggies this week, actually three, uh, two two regular films and then one box set. The box set is the Alfred Hitchcock Classics Collection oh. on 4K Ultra HD. This is a big deal. Uh, Rear Window, Vertigo, Psycho, and The Birds. Now, people might be asking themselves, well, why didn't you include, you know, The Trouble with Harry and blah, 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 the rest of them from the, the original Hitchcock box set. And the reason being that a lot of them need restoration. A lot of them need to be redone digitally. Mm. Uh, 
these four look fantastic. Uh, Psycho obviously is black and white and, and didn't need a lot of work. Uh, but these are the ones that look, that are ready for prime time. These are the ones that are ready for 4K UHD. And so be happy with what you got and the others will come in due order. But, um, you know, I, I know that means you're going to, if you, you know, if you have the other box set and you're like, but I got to keep the box set. I can't, now I'm double dipping. Don't worry about it. Just deal with the anxiety. The other stuff will come in short, short order. Uh, uh, this has, this also has two versions of Psycho on it. We should point out because Psycho was changed after it was originally screened in 1960. And um, th this one, this includes the, the original 1960 uncensored version of it, which a lot of people have not seen. So then, uh, of course, Rear Window and the Birds and Vertigo, it's all incomparable, but they look fantastic. Absolutely gorgeous, beautiful 4K. It is well worth the upgrade. And then we have Full Metal Jacket. Uh, Yay! On 4K! Arlie Ermey swearing at you. Um, Tim, is there any more quotable movie than in, in history? I mean, period. Uh, look, uh, the, the fantastic screenplay, Stanley and Michael It's just, and you know, a young Matthew Modine, just so many guys, so many guys that came to be, uh, you know, to go on to have real careers and become real stars. Vincent D'Onofrio, Dorian Harewood, Arliss Howard, just so many, so many, so many. This is one of those movies that simply made careers. Uh, back in the day, uh, along with a lot of those movies that were coming out in the mid-80s. This is 87, I think, um, and that were set in around um, the, 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 the war in Vietnam. Um, uh, yep. You had this and you had Platoon, which is also running right now. Made a whole other group of guys. You had Hamburger Hill, also running right now. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, Full Metal Jacket, the, the granddaddy of them all. It's it just... It's and I know a lot of people kind of don't really get it because it's really two acts, you know. It's guys at boot yep. camp and then guys in in the in in the in the in, in the jungle yeah. or not in the jungle, but in the in in, in, in country. country as we say, in country as they say. And but look, there would be no Vincent D'Onofrio yeah. if not for this movie. Yeah. It just it uh, it's it's just so good. And it's and, and, so you know, and it said Arlie, Arlie, of course, we lost Arlie not too long ago. Arlie, of course, uh, right. had been a drill sergeant. Uh, yeah, actually, and he's played it before in movies, you know, and uh, and it, and you know, it sort of shaped his career for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> and and then a lot of that dialogue he came in with, a lot of those those quotable lines are not Kubrick; those are those are his yeah. lines. He brought them in from the field. Um, and then we also have the 45th anniversary limited edition of Jaws oh, wow. on 4K, the blockbuster that started it all. Um, you know, Jaws. When when I when I taught my class that you were very kind enough to come in and guest yeah. in, um, Jaws was the movie that I used to sort of identify as the change in style. I said, look at look at, and I showed him, you know, a movie that had that that I, something from just a few years before Jaws, and then showed him Jaws. I said, you know, does the other movie look like an old movie? They're like, yeah, it feels like an old movie. Does Jaws feel like it could have been made last year? Yep, it sure does. Um, Spielberg changed everything. With yeah. Jaws. He he basically brought a style of filmmaking in that changed everything. And uh, the the sometimes when this is shown, you you uh, theatrically you get a kind of a bleached out print, and it looks like a movie from the seventies because they all have that sort of washed out uh, grainy color. They have done a number on this so that the only thing that tells you this is a movie from the seventies are the clothes, because otherwise the sound, the picture, the movie itself, everything about it. It feels as modern as can be. They've done a wonderful job. It absolutely justifies the 4K upgrade. It has a lenticular hologram cover. Mm -hmm. 
which we always used to make fun of, but it's actually kind of cool the way they do it. So um, tons of extras on here too. Uh, all the behind the scenes stuff. It, it's, it's really, really great. I, I love this movie. It just doesn't, it just doesn't, it, it ages so well. Yeah, the story of the, of the mechanical shark that didn't work. Uh, most of the time, yeah. And thus made the movie. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's, you know, what the thing that I also love about this is that it's the movie that was saved by Verna Fields, right? That's the famous story is that Spielberg was the up and coming director. He had just done uh, the, the Sugarland Express yeah. and this was supposed to put him over the top. And they, the, the first cut of the film was a disaster. The shark looked fake people, you know, it just, it was a disaster. And to show you what a good editor can do, Verna Fields came in, cracked her knuckles, worked her magic. And suddenly it became the most successful film in history. Yeah. It, it cleaned up. It cleaned up. Yeah, get that shark out of the movie. M. Night Shyamalan uh, could have learned from that um, years later. True. Movies like uh, Sign and whatnot. Stop showing me the monster. Uh, yeah, exactly. It will never be as scary as the thing in my head. Let me, uh, let's see. Got a, We have just a, a few minutes left. Um, should probably... Uh, make mention of some of our Criterion titles here. Um, let me just pull these out. We've got uh, two this week that are well worth mentioning. The Elephant Man, what I still think is David Lynch's best film, is, uh, is out on Blu-ray from Criterion in a lovely kind of slim custom case. There are loads of extras here. Keep in mind, David Lynch doesn't like chapter divisions and he doesn't like commentaries that's not his deal so uh he wants you to put the movie on and watch it straight through so i recommend you do that and honor the man's uh wishes that said this has a ton of extras on it it's got archival interviews with everybody from you know lynch to mel brooks who of course produced it and gave lynch his shot directing it john hurt um, it's got uh, uh, audio, you know, audio recording from the Amer American Film Institute uh, interview with David Lynch in 1981. Um, it's got a 2001 documentary about the actual Elephant Man. Uh, so much stuff. I mean, endless amounts of material here. So it's it may be not what everybody wants necessarily, but boy, it really, really does round the film out. And the film, the Criterion black and white transfer of, of the Elephant Man is as beautiful as anything you will ever see. And then lastly, uh, Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project, which um, features six films from uh, other countries, other periods of time. This is part of what his World Cinema Project is. This is the latest collection of them. Uh, three double features on here, basically. Uh, three separate little, little sleeves you can pull out. Each one has two films. Um, we have Umberto Solas's Lucia from Cuba in 1968. Usmar Ismail's After the Curfew from Indonesia in 1954. Hector Babenko, who is the most famous of all of these, Hector Babenko made Piote in Brazil in 1980, would go on to do Kiss the Spider Woman yeah. and uh, many other fine films. Uh, Juan Bustillo Oro's Dos Monjes, a uh, 1934 film in Mexico, an early talkie. Uh, Med Hondo's Soleo from Mauritania, 1970. And lastly, Baram Beze's Downpour, an early Iranian film from 1972. Um, Scorsese's been doing this since 2007 with his film foundation's World Cinema Project, which uh, basically seeks to bring the world smaller through uh, this kind of ethnographic film programming of films from all different corners of the world and all periods of time. It's a beautiful collection, and you will learn an enormous amount, not just about filmmaking, but about other cultures and people. Yeah. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. 
yeah, it, it, it really is. Uh, the, it, we should we should do something like that. We should we should we should we should we should bring films to the fore, whatever they are. I mean, they don't even have to be from other cultures that we think are fantastic. Yeah, uh, that uh, that we just want folks to know about. Um, uh, the, the slip between the cracks, sling the slip between the cracks. Or just uh, from long ago, and you know, it, it's, it, that'd be a wonderful thing to do. We should do that. Yep, indeed, indeed. All right, well, with that, uh, we're going to bring the show to a close, and I'm going to tag the end of the show here for those who are interested. We're going to have a, an extra little segment that I, uh, I pre-recorded on anime because we're getting a ton of anime. That seems to be the one thing that is thriving right now um, because you can't go on sets anywhere in the world and shoot movies yeah. uh, the way that you used to, so movies are kind of being choked a little bit at the moment, but television, not necessarily. And uh, anime, definitely not. A bunch of guys can still get around in Japan and, and, and draw pictures. So as long as they can do that with a mask on, apparently um, we're going to get anime. So anime is thriving right now. And uh, if you stick around the end of the show, I will uh, dovetail us into our little anime segment. Otherwise, uh, we're gonna, we'll, we'll be back next week with, uh, with a really, really great interview um, with Paul benedict rowan author of making ryan's daughter the myths madness and mastery uh stay tuned for that in uh in a matter of days tim uh anything else that i've missed i i don't think so man i think we covered just about everything that it's possible to cover today all right well stay safe out there uh you know hopefully the uh, the air clears up and they get that fire out and um i'll catch up with you next week all right see you folks and here is our anime segment for the uh, last week of September. Uh, the the incredible thing about anime is that it seems to be the one thing that is uh, de is defying the uh, the pandemic. Uh, everything else seems to be kind of uh, a lot of studios are mining their libraries and their catalogs, and uh, new movies are that are in the can or are coming out. But uh, everybody's kind of looking for new material. And yet anime is thriving. It is an enormous industry in Japan. We, we cover it as often as we can. And um, it really seems to be the thing that is, uh, is defying the pandemic. So we're getting a lot of really great anime titles. Um, first off is going to be an absolute moment of celebration for anime fans, uh, especially those with 4K. 4K has not been adopted for anime titles to any significant degree until now. And uh, the, the legendary Ghost in the Shell is out in a 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and digital combo set. This is courtesy of Lionsgate, who has pulled out all the stops. It is an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous release. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ghost in the Shell is, is a, really a legendary uh, milestone in anime, um, especially in the, in the mecha and the cyberpunk fields. It's, it's just huge. And uh, it is a, it is, this is a significant achievement to put it on 4K, to remaster it the way that they have. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the color pops, the animation pops. If there is a, a drawback to it in any way, uh, it is that the um, that 4K does to anime pretty much what it does to everything else, which is that it, it, uh, it reveals the flaws. It shows you a little bit too much of the detail that would normally not necessarily show up, especially if you're sitting close to your television. Um, but that's a small price to pay. It's, uh, it's a minor thing. The, uh, the, the transfer is absolutely fantastic. It comes with an audio commentary with uh, featurettes and uh, all kinds of uh, behind-the-scenes making-of stuff that will give you wonderful insight into anime. Also comes with digital copy. 
uh, although because it's Lionsgate, it is not movies anywhere, so you have to kind of pick your, uh, your player, pick your outlet. But um, that being said, it is, uh, it, it's, it's still fantastic. So as long as uh, Lionsgate eventually aligns with the movies anywhere consortium i think you'll you'll be in uh, in good shape um so anyway yes that is uh, that is ghost in the shell on 4k 4k with blu-ray and with uh, digital copy also a really big deal is your name from funimation uh this is a steel book your name was a huge deal for us in the la film critics association we gave this our uh, best animated film of the year a few years back and uh, it was one of the big anime films of the decade. Um, this is from Makoto Shinkai, who is a real powerhouse in anime and will be for quite a while to come. Uh, this is a, a, you know, a, a, a beautiful kind of fantasy, existential, um, mind-tripping romance. It's, it's sort of, uh, you know, it, it's... It, 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 it's one of the few anime that kind of goes to a philosophical place that is positive and not sort of born out of um, uh, post-nuclear anxiety, which is really where anime was, was to many, in many ways, was born. This is a hopeful anime. It is a very humanistic anime, and it's extremely imaginative, and uh, really, even, even for people who don't necessarily like anime, I think they will find a lot here to really, really love. There's an interview with Makoto Shinkai, uh, among the special features, as well as a uh, special television program and some trailers. And that is a steelbook from Funimation. And uh, then we also have uh, from Funimation, Human Lost, the movie. And uh, this is actually based on a novel, which I didn't know, a novel that was originally written in 1948. I don't know how closely the novel hues to, the, uh, to this. Uh, but the uh, the story basically is near future. It takes place about uh, 15 years in the future from now, where medicine and nanotechnology have made people immune to disease. But if you if you remove the nanotechnology or you undo it, you turn into a monster. So there's a there's a bit of a kind of um, a cyberpunk Frankenstein uh, theme going on here. It's very, very well done, very interesting. Uh, it takes a little bit to get into to kind of uh, adapt to the world that they're building, but uh, once you're into it, it's, uh, it's kind of a, it's a very provocative ride. Uh, G-Kids, uh, working with uh, Shout Factory, have released another three terrific titles. Uh, the obvious, most important one being The Wind Rises from Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, this is part of their Studio Ghibli line, and uh, this was Academy Award nominated as well. The Wind Rises is a beautiful, beautiful film. One of Miyazaki's very, very best. The English language voice talent is uh, off the chart. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and William H. Macy, John Krasinski, Emily Blunt, Mandy Patinkin, Stanley Tucci, Martin Short. It's a, it's a, it's a really, really amazing cast. Um, the uh, the story, of course, is uh, it all takes place in the in 1923 uh, after a rather substantially legendary earthquake, and it's the story of a very very famous plane designer, Yuro uh, Horikoshi, who um, is a bit of a, a, a legendary figure in uh, in Japan. Um, controversial at the same time because of uh, his involvement in World War II later on, but. Uh, as, a, as far as anime biopics go, this is the only one I'm even remotely familiar with that, that is that. So 
it's a beautiful film, beautifully done, uh, captures uh, the era and all the sensibilities of the story in a really, really lovely way, very nostalgic. Uh, the Wind Rises from Hayao Miyazaki and the Studio Ghibli Collection from G-Kids and Shout Factory includes a uh, storyboards, uh, documentary material, uh, making of material, uh, and, and a booklet. It's really, really great. And then also from the uh, G-Kids Shout Factory Alliance, uh, a couple of others, Children of the Sea and Weathering with You. Uh, Makoto Shinkai, who we just talked about a moment ago, is the genius behind Weathering with You. And um, this unfortunately didn't get enough traction last year. Um, probably should have. Uh, for whatever reason, it just didn't kind of uh, hit the mark the way that uh, other, others did, either as far as, you know, uh, Critics Awards or the Academy Awards. But um, uh, this is really, uh, it, again, again, it's not in the same vein as your name, but it has a lovely charm all of its own. Basically, it's the story of a runaway boy and an orphan girl, and this really, really sweet youth romance. And uh, it would it, the only thing that distinguishes it is, of course, the magical quality that the girl has power to control the weather, which dovetails into all kinds of wonderful allegorical and metaphorical uh, imagery. And it's very, very sweet. So um, if you like your name, you're going to definitely want to check out Weathering With You, also by Makoto Shinkai. Loaded with extras as well, and inter a further interview with uh, Shinkai, uh, also a talk show from uh, Japanese television, featurette, and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, pretty great. And then the other title, Children of the Sea, is uh, is also likewise packed with all kinds of uh, stuff. It, whatever whatever weathering with you is to sort of the weather, uh, Children of the Sea is to the sea. Which is to say that it is, uh, it is a source for all kinds of wonderful metaphorical and allegorical comments on youth and society and friendship. Uh, this is the story of a young girl who, uh, during her summer vacation, hangs out at the aquarium where her father works and develops a friendship with a couple of very strange young boys who seem to, have, seem to be in possession of uh, a certain aquatic powers and all kinds of other interesting phenomena is happening around the world related to the oceans and especially around Japan and so you do get and it's a very similar thing it's a it's friendship and romance and a wonderful kind of allegorical metaphorical backdrop to it beautiful film also tons of featurette material and uh, on the making of uh, the film so G Kids continues to uh, really knock it out of the park uh, from uh, right stuff uh, who continues to do great stuff the right stuff uh, and sunrise library we have a couple of new Gundam editions, the single largest universe uh, anywhere in the movies, larger than the Marvel Cinematic Universe, larger than the, uh, than the DC Universe, larger than Star Wars, larger than anything else that has ever been conceived, even in anime, live action or animation anywhere, is Gundam. Uh, there's no way to keep up with all the, the nuances of the Gundam timeline and the Gundam universe and which century and which wars and which characters. It's just vast. It can consume a lifetime. So without giving you any further detail on that, uh, you, can, you can certainly research that. And it's a wealth of animation, too. The, the styles of animation are not necessarily always the same. So the, they certainly give their, uh, their animators a lot of a latitude. Um, but it is, it still all belongs to the Mecha universe, the universe of Transformers and uh, Geta Robo and all, you know, all the stuff that deals with giant robots and, and the like. This particular uh, installment, Gundam Build Fighters, is, is kind of a weird uh, meta 
inter, uh, part of the Gundam universe. It takes place in the 1980s, not in, in the actual Gundam world. It takes place in this world, and it centers around uh, kids who, who uh, build Gundam sets and engage in these, these kind of virtual warfare, these virtual, this virtual gaming of, uh, of Gundam warriors. Um, it's a little peculiar. You've got to really, really be into the, into the Gundam world to sort of appreciate the meta quality of it, the self-reflexive quality. But it includes uh, two uh, really, really cool stories, Gundam Build Fighters Try, Island Wars, and Gundam Build Fighters GM's Counterattack, as well as the five-episode miniseries Gundam Build Fighters Battle Log. Battlelog is probably the main reason to see this, but again, it, it, takes, a little, uh, it takes a little familiarity with what's going on here. Uh, and then the, uh, the next one is, is similar. This is not Gundam Build Fighters. This is Gundam Build Divers. And this is the sequel series. It is about six hours in length. Um, I, I don't think it's quite as fun. It's a little bit, it tries to be more imaginative, and I think it, uh, it's just, it's going for a little bit too much excess. But it's, it'll make no sense unless you start with fighters. You're going to start with fighters, work your way to divers. Um, and if, uh, if you have a little bit of background on it, you'll probably be able to, to dip into it uh, pretty well. But again, this, uh, this takes a little bit of background in the uh, Gundam universe. You can find out more and purchase the discs by going to Right Stuff Anime. That is Right Stuff with one F, uh, S-T-U-F, RightStuffAnime.com. And then uh, lastly, we have a whole bunch of really cool stuff from Sente, uh, courtesy of Section 23, which... Um, Start, which is mostly female-centric. It's amazing how how strong the the uh, the feminist impulse is these days with uh, a lot of this stuff from Sente. The complete uh, two seasons of uh, Diabolic Lovers, Diabolic with K at the end, um, based on what they call a visual novel. I am not familiar with the visual novel, which apparently is some kind of interactive gameplay thing. That's where this started. Uh, effectively, there's obviously no interactivity here per se. Just a few special features, not uh, not a ton. But the story, of course, is, uh, is about a girl and uh, and her interaction with these these six vampire brothers and the kind of gothic mysteries and adventures that entail. Really great animation, by the way. Fantastic artwork. Very imaginative. Very um, kind of unanime in certain respects. Uh, and the story, the storytelling as well. So it's a, it is a, certainly a departure, probably would be more popular with the uh, with teens than with adults. It, it aims for that lost boys kind of uh, kind of vibe. But uh, Diabolic Lovers from Sente, two seasons on Blu-ray. These are all Blu-ray, by the way. Uh, then Undefeated Bahamut Chronicle, the complete collection. Uh, this is also very, very aggressive uh, artwork and, and very cool, uh, kind of medieval gothic is maybe the, the genre style to uh, describe on this. Um, it's like medieval gothic mixed with, uh, with mecha a little bit. Uh, involves uh, mechanical dragons and uh, these uh, kind of uh, retro-futuristic retro uh, knight uh, ceremonies and it's uh, the central figure here is a prince by the name of Lux and it centers around his relationship with uh, a young princess and uh, their relationship while at a uh, at a kind of Harry Potter like academy for for training young royals of the Arcadia Empire 
and, and and other obvious other royals and other other uh, other families. Um, it, that's kind of being a little bit evasive and getting to some of the secrets that are involved here. The 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 mystery is kind of the thing, but the artwork is really really beautiful, and that is uh, undefeated Bahamut Chronicle, the complete collection. And then we get into a lot of fun, really uh, kind of kid-oriented stuff here with uh, how clumsy you are, Miss Ueno. Uh, this skew's very, very young. It's very, very goofy. It's very silly. doesn't necessarily work for me. It's, uh, it's very uh, schoolgirl-oriented. But uh, it obviously there's a following for this stuff, as there is for a lot of other things that I don't particularly care for, like, uh, like Pokemon. Uh, so, you know, if you... Uh, if you, you want to see a lot of kind of uh, anime, sla you, very young skewing anime slapstick, uh, all of it oriented to, uh, to schoolgirls and school politics and, and whatnot, uh, and, you know, whatever, whatever peculiar things go on in Japanese schools, this is really down your alley. It, but it's, it is, uh, it's a little bit over the top as far as the comedy. Uh, Old Maidens in Your Savage Season, uh, another interesting title. Uh, this is a complete collection of uh, another school-oriented thing. This is all about the, uh, the, 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 the literature club and, at a particular school, and uh, you think it's kind of chaste at that point, and then it takes a bit of a, a, a young adult turn. So um, you might want to... Uh, Look at this first, if you're parents, if you're thinking about, you know, sitting some anime-loving kids down in front of this. I would say younger than 16, probably not, even though the animation looks like it's, uh, like it's safe. Um, it is, it, it's a little bit more mature than, uh, than that. So, anyway, and it, and it does ask some interesting questions, but um, not, not for the, the youngest kids. The, uh, the sports fixation that is uh, a peculiar part of anime, especially for those that skew to uh, high school kids, is all over the place in Run With The Wind, the complete collection, which uh, centers on uh, high school running and uh, the competition and the politics of, uh, of track competition in high school. In this case, a relay marathon. Uh, it's got some, uh, you know, modest uh, special features. The animation is fine. The storytelling is a little bit melodramatic, but uh, it's in. It's right in the pocket with the rest of that stuff. We also have the complete collection of uh, Tonari, T-O-N-A-R-I, No Seki-kun, the Master of Killing Time. Tonaro No Seki-kun, S-E-K-I dash K-U-N. The Master of Killing Time. Uh, once again, we are we are in the world of uh, of school slapsticks. This is kind of more middle school, high school oriented, but uh, not terribly silly. Actually, kind of skews much younger than that age group. If we were not distance learning, I suspect my daughter would find this to be very very funny. Uh, in the era of distance learning, it feels like <laughs> something from another era. Basically, it's about a girl who uh, who goes crazy because of what the kid at the neighboring desk in her classroom is always doing and it's an endless series of bizarre projects it's like being next to carrot top in your classroom uh it, it's cute it's a little bit one note it's apparently based on a manga series as most of them are with which i am not familiar but uh it's got its moments it's got its uh, humorous little moments but it definitely skews very very young and very uh, superficial uh that is tonari no siki kun the master of killing time uh, we've also got uh, another Utano Prince Sama, Maji Love Kingdom, 
this is superbly animated, but if you don't know, I mean, really extraordinary artwork and very imaginative and beautifully put together, uh, tremendously artistic. But if you are not already kind of up to speed on the uh, Utano world and the 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 uh, all the everything that leads into this and is a part of this you're probably going to be a little bit uh, caught off guard um it does rec- it, it you probably should be somewhat initiated into this world before taking a dive into this one the uh, material basically centers on uh, a school where kids learn to be pop stars and composers and whatnot uh it's based on a uh, a playstation game originally where a lot of this pop star stuff was obviously interactive, and the uh, Maji Love was the original anime adaptation of that, and then uh, there are several movies, and and uh, finally you get to Maji Love Kingdom. So this is sort of the tail end of all of that. And if you haven't really, uh, if you haven't really kind of gotten into it from the very very beginning, that you're gonna, ha- it's it's gonna make no sense at all. So um, make sure you're you're caught up before you you dive into this one. Uh, After the Rain, really lovely and poetic and very, very simple. Um, the uh, This is about, uh, I don't know how to put this, this is this is sort of about finding your place in the world and, uh, and learning how to love and learning how to love yourself more than anything else. It's one of those anime that deals with, uh, with the young woman's uh, insecurities and anxieties and uh, the kind of existential journey that she... Uh, goes on to discover all of that after her her aspirations of being a track athlete are sidelined by an injury, and uh, it's not about you know the athletics of it. It's not about the injury. It's uh, it's about emotions and uh, it's about uh, growing up. It's not even really a coming of age film. It's sort of a uh, a coming to a sense of yourself film, and uh, it is it is really really nicely done. Um, I shouldn't say film. It's it's a it's a show. It's twelve episodes, but uh, it's a, it's a nice it's a nice story, and it does it doesn't require you to sort of immerse yourself in any kind of magical universe as so many of these do that have comes with a lot of rules and parameters. It's hard to sort of figure out. Uh, similar in some respects is Frag Time. This also has some very simple and poetic things to say about life. Uh, centers around these uh, these two girls who meet uh, as a consequence of one of them having the power to stop time for three minutes every day, and the other one who winds up, who is basically immune to it. Um, and uh, that's an interesting little allegorical uh, twist that um, that leads to some re- some really lovely observations about life and love and friendship and other things. So, uh, frag time is probably also worth your time. And uh, Try Nights, that's Try, like T-R-Y, Try Nights, K-N-I-G-H-T-S, not as in Nighttime Nights. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily realized that rugby was uh, hugely popular in Japan. I guess it is. Japan's not exactly a rugby powerhouse. But uh, that's what this is all about. This is all about the, uh, the politics and the relationships and the strategies and the drama that goes on in a rugby team. And that's it. There's nothing else going on here. Uh, so if you're, if you're really into anime rugby, this is your cup of tea. Uh, if you're into rugby, I guess it's probably your cup of tea. But uh, otherwise, it's, uh, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Uh, the Tamako Market Love Story Collection includes the original television series and a movie on three discs. So it's everything here that the, uh, the Tamako Market fans and fan base could possibly have hoped for. 
Uh, again, Skew's pretty young. All takes place in and around a candy store, a family-run uh, candy market, and uh, deals mainly with a lot of uh, a lot of childhood anxiety and the, the things that kids seem to think are more important than they really are, uh, friendships and, and whatnot. Uh, the only thing that sets it kind of peculiarly apart is the talking bird. I won't get into the details of the talking bird. It's just one of those things that comes in from the side, and uh, you just got to kind of go with it. Domestic Girlfriend is uh, kind of tedious, I thought. Uh, I, it, it definitely skews older teen, high school age, basically about a kid who has a crush on his teacher and then winds up um, possibly having a chance at a relationship with uh, a classmate and all of these rather... Um, uh, it, it, you know, it's high school stuff. It's high school ro relationship stuff. I don't particularly like how they play it. I, I think it definitely uh, pushes some buttons that uh, I'd rather it not push. But, um, you know, it's uh, it, it, it belongs to the high school romance and politics and sex crowd of the uh, of uh, that, that, that particular subgenre of anime. Domestic Girlfriend, The Complete Collection. On the other end of the spectrum is Senrayu Girl, which is uh, a high school, more high school drama, but it's about a girl basically who can only communicate through poetry. So all of these episodes, uh, and this is a complete collection of this, all these episodes basically feel like animated poetry. Uh, it's lovely if you're you're into that. It's probably not so lovely if you're uh, if you're looking for something a, a little bit more. Um, a little more accessible. It's it's very very peculiar, very particular kind of anime storytelling. Uh, then we also have the uh, very young skewing restage dream days. That's R E colon stage exclamation point dream days. This is the complete collection, and uh, this is more of the Japanese obsession with being a pop star, which apparently is a really big deal, especially with young girls in Japan. I'm sure it's a big deal with young girls everywhere, but they, other countries don't create multiple anime series about it, and uh, they do. Uh, it's, uh, you know, this about this girl. She joins her little, this little uh, dance club and um, winds up becoming like a, like a big phenomenon and competition. And, you know, if you're, if you're really into American Idol and all that kind of stuff, uh, you'll probably absolutely love it. Young girls who want to be pop stars... I don't know. Might be might be too much. Might not be the right thing you want to show them. Also skewing somewhat uh, in the same age group, maybe a tad older, is Nun Nun Biori Vacation, the movie. Um, you don't have to necessarily be really, really into the, the Nun Nun Biori uh, world. You don't have to sort of have followed it to any great degree to necessarily appreciate what's going on here. It's cute, not great, but just, just cute. This is basically wedged between the two Nan Nan Viori TV series, and uh, all the kids are basically on vacation in Okinawa and having a great time. That's it. That's all there is going on here. Um, so again, don't have to know the other stuff, but if you do, it probably it's uh, for completists. It's uh, it's probably essential. Um, Made Sama, also from Sente, the complete collection. More high school melodrama here. Uh, basically about a girl who's popular in high school and then the family has debt problems and she has to take a secret job as a waitress and what is that going to do to her popularity and her friendships and so forth and so on. 
27 episodes. Some of you may have seen this on Netflix. Uh, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but that's where a lot of people saw it here. It's on Blu-ray if you want to uh, if you want to grab it. Also now on Blu-ray is Is It Wrong to Try to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon 2, Familia Myth. Uh, we've talked about this before on the show. I can't really add anything to this other than the fact that this is, it just keeps baffling me how this even got thought up. I It's just, uh, uh, it's, it's like, um, I don't know what it is. It's it is it is an unusual, very peculiar uh, show idea that borders on hentai, but it's not. It's still anime, and uh, it it's supernatural and it's provocative and it's titillating and it's half serious and half ridiculous. And I just don't understand it. But it has a following. They keep making them. So there it is. Is it wrong to try to pick up girls in a dungeon? Familia two, familia myth. Uh, the complete collection, 12 episodes, plus the OVA on two discs. Uh, and getting down to just a few final titles here, there is Why the Hell Are You Here, Teacher? Exclamation point, question mark. Uh, this is the complete collection of one of the more bizarre anime series that I've, uh, I've seen. Again, all centered around the politics of a public school. But um, the, this one is... Uh, again, gets pretty risque. Uh, this, so this definitely skews older teen, young adult, uh, because it's again not not hente, but it's kind of bordering with it. And this is uncensored. I don't know if this was censored on television, but um, it, this centers around uh, a sex education course in the high school, and it, the very very attractive teacher uh, responsible for it. It's hard to know if what transpires thereafter is meant to be titillating or meant to be provocative or meant to be cautionary. It might be none of the above. It might be all of the above. Um, I'll leave it to, to certainly anime fans to tell me whether or not it's tasteful or tasteless, but it is, it is unlike anything else uh, I've ever seen. And then last, uh, lastly, we've got uh, two different uh, releases of Prisma Ilya here. That's Prisma, P-R-I-S-M-A. Uh, Ilya, I-L-L-Y-A. There is Prisma Ilya, uh, Prisma Phantasm, and Prisma Ilya, Vow in the Snow. Now, if you are not immersed completely in this world already, and it, the complete title is Fate Khalid Liner Prisma Ilya, but it just goes mostly by Prisma Ilya because that's only the thing that, uh, that non-Japanese speakers can, uh, can easily pronounce and remember. Um, there are two previous anime series based on this, the story of a young girl in school who discovers that she's a magician and a sorceress and all of her adventures that transpire thereafter. If you haven't followed the first two seasons, the first two series, none of this will make a whole lot of sense to you. Uh, the Prisma Phantasm is a new series, and Vow in the Snow is a, is a feature film. Slightly different in the style of animation, actually quite, quite beautiful and a little bit, little bit uh, different in a really, really good way, um, which stitches this final season and series together with the previous two but again if you're not if you're not immersed in this uh, none of it will make a whole lot of sense uh if you are it's probably really fun so uh i will leave that strictly to to fans prisma Ilya vow in the snow the movie and uh, prisma Ilya prisma phantasm the latest uh series in the long-running prisma uh, prisma Ilya uh adventure of the young girl uh, who is a sorceress uh that's it for this week 
Please tune in uh, next week. We're going to try to, to load up on uh, on interviews with authors and some other things uh, intermittent on weeks when we're not able to uh, to come together and to do some uh, some reviews of DVDs and Blu-rays. Meanwhile, please email us at gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. Anything that you want to ask, anything you want to uh, inquire about, or visit the Facebook pages both for digigods which requires membership just ask to be to join if you want or cinegods.com which can be followed by anyone see you later <laughs>